Ben Adigi, welcome to Tell a Friend. You're welcome. Thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, for my audience who may not have come across you, you were the first black football player to play for England. And you can correct me on the date, but it was 1971 that you made history, right? Yeah, that's correct. So I was wondering if you could talk to me about your journey that led to that historic moment. Huh. I think, where do I start from? Probably my early days, primary school. Uh, that led me to secondary school. And secondary school, I had three very, very good PE teachers. Um, ironically, two of them were called Mr. Amazing, I've forgotten their name now. Um, but uh, two of them were called Mr. Murphy. And in fact, they were both called Colin Murphy, both of them. One became my youth team coach at Charlton Athletics, and, and the other one uh, managed Derby County and later on joined Southend United. And uh, at school, we were selected to go for England trials. In fact, that was the first time I met a chap called Laurie Cunningham. We both were trials together at Bisham Abbey. And from there, our friendship uh, blossomed. And when he signed as an apprentice at Orient, I signed as an apprentice at Charlton. So we had time to meet each other, exchange ideas and in, in stuff, and our friendship grew. And uh, my England trial, in fact, I must have done something well because uh, I was then selected for England State Boys. And as the word goes, the rest is history. I became the first black in England footballer, the first one to actually play for England at any level. Now, what was your reaction when you found out you were going to be signed? <laughs> I mean, it's every, every, oh, every youngster's dream. Um, I can't find any words that would describe the feeling. Overjoy would be a mild way of describing it. And it was something I, I wanted to do as a, as a youngster, but my parents, in Africans, really believe in education. And um, of course, my parents, both of them were totally against me playing football for a living. And they did everything humanly possible to discourage me. But of course, as a youngster growing up, seeing your favorite players doing things on the field you want to emulate them and um, my dreams came through due to a lot of support from PE teachers and also well wishes that guided me through the amateur side of football into a professional world and so you would just been signed was there any apprehension that you had about how you'd be received in the football community or were you just full of excitement? Full of excitement. All I wanted to do was play football. Nothing else mattered. And even the, my parents who actually wanted me to become someone in our society, as in, 
having a degree because we Africans, we in fact, we came to England to spend the minimum, minimum, or, or minimum or a maximum of three years study and then go home. This is my parents' um, uh, generation. And uh, some of them did exactly the same thing. They studied after three years, went back to Africa and set up their own business or did what they studied here back home. So my parents wanted me to become either a lawyer or a doctor. But, uh, my line of work rests on you know, sports. Football at that age is something I could do without trying too hard. Um, educationally, not too bad, but uh, I would have, I preferred football rather than, uh, I preferred sports rather than uh, education. Now, which part of Africa were your family from? Because I'm from East Africa. Uh, I'm from West Africa. Yeah, I'm from I, West I, Africa. I guess from the name, from the name. Yes, my parents are, well, Nigerians. And, um, they actually came to England in the mid-60s and I joined them um, a few years after that, well, mid-60s as well. And um, I just enjoyed the freedom that we had here in England in terms of expressing yourself in things that you do, especially in sports. And the fact that I can express myself, the fact that I had the freedom to do what, it, what I wanted to do within reasons, of course. Football was something that I dreamed of. I mean, back home, you see and you hear of all these famous names. And then you're now here in England. You can see them. You can even go and watch them and touch them and ask for an autograph. And I, was, I was in my element. Now, with the freedoms you speak about, back in the late 60s and continuing on to the 70s, there were also yes. some heavy restrictions placed on non-white individuals. And I was wondering, <laughs> talk to me about the social and political climate during the time that you were growing up in the UK. Well, <laughs> I think young footballers these days they all talk about racism in football. When I was playing, racism was rife. It was open. And there's nothing you as a player can do about it. Now, the first time I actually experienced racism was when my father and I uh, were out and we saw an advert saying, room to let no Irish, no dogs, no blacks. So when you look at that advert, even dogs were more important than us black people. But then it didn't really matter to me because I, I didn't understand the concept of that and advertising. And secondly, when I was selected for England schoolboys, and uh, we were given, uh, we were introduced to the directors. And I, and I remember one particular incident clearly when I shook one of the directors' hands, 
And he looked at me and said to me, Ben, you're now one of us. I didn't really understand that statement until my first game at Wembley. Afterwards, I was outside a shop in Bond Street and a guy walked past me and called me a black bastard. And I looked at him. A few hours ago, running around representing England, I was okay. I am now in my city clothes. I'm regarded as a black bastard. That statement stayed with me for a very, very long time. And it continued. Because every time I played, I either had bananas thrown at me. I either, I was, I was called names. Even the players that you were playing against will openly, racially abuse you and there's nothing you can do about it. Who do you complain to? The people that were supposed to be guiding you, looking after you, were those who were actually um, calling you names. They're the ones who, uh, who were behind some, some of these racial comments. But in their defense, they looked at it as if they were joking. To them, I'm having a laugh. Don't you take a joke? But being called names of that nature, it's not a joke to a player. It's the meaning. Do you... The, the, sorry. Sorry, I was going to ask, do you feel that the football team and the managers and the executives that be failed in their responsibility of looking after you as a player? Yes, yes, I would say that. But in those days, it didn't really matter to them because you had programs on television which really demean us black people. Programs like Love Their Neighbours, um, Afghanis program on, on BBC, you know, um, actors openly calling us nigmogs. So really, it was a way of life in those days. And there's nothing we can do as, as black people to protect ourselves. Because the people that you were supposed to, that are supposed to look after you, uh, some of them are behind what was happening. And for some, they didn't know how to rectify that. They didn't know what to do. So they just went with the flow. And am I, am I correct in believing you were growing up in southeast London? Am I correct in that? Yeah, yeah you're and, right, southeast London. And I've seen from my reading that um, during this period, there was also a younger, more radical uh, black generation that was coming up at that time, very uh, active in London. Were you aware of this resistance that was going on at that time? Yes, I was, but um, I, ha I had to turn a blind eye to that because um, to us, if you really wanted to succeed in what you're doing, as in football, 
to stay well clear of anything that might get you into trouble. So, yes, we, I stayed away from it. In those days, the emergency of um, the, the first batch of skinheads were around then. And as a black human being, you had to look after yourself any way possible. If you meant running away from trouble, you did it. If you meant fighting your way through trouble, you had to. And there were times when they would corner us and you had to fight your way through that. How you did it didn't really matter, but as long as you got away from it. But as young footballers then, we had to stay away from trouble any way we could do it. And I always, I always uh, look at black sports players and uh, many of them get racist abuse like uh, we're talking about. And I always think how weird it must be for them where you're in a position where you're you know, either representing your nation, you're providing entertainment for people, and those same people are the people that will easily disregard you at the drop of a hat. Was that a weird conundrum to try and get around? Yes, for some of them, it's the fear of the, of the unknown. Because uh, home supporters, some of them are okay. But the away supporters are the ones that you had to look out for. Because they would do anything possible to put you off your game. And when that happened when I was playing, for me, it meant that I was doing something that was hurting them. So that gave me the courage to actually play even better. Because um, if I was in a, uh, a problem to them, they would have left me alone. They wouldn't say anything. They wouldn't throw bananas at me. So I must have been doing something that is affecting their team or the players that were playing against that made them do what they were doing. I remember one incident at the end of a match, um, a lady looked at me and, and asked me a question. The question was, uh, in Africa, do you still live on trees? For a split second, I was shocked. So my reply was, uh, sorry, ma'am, no, we don't, we don't live on one tree anymore. We moved from tree to tree now. And she was shocked by my reply. And things like that used to happen. And this time I had bananas thrown at me, thrown at me on the pitch. And endless time I've had things said to me, people walking by, calling names like Nignog, coons. These are the things that we had to fight against. And at times it was so demoralizing that there were times that I actually felt like giving the game up totally because of what was happening in those days. Young footballers nowadays, um, well, they've got it slightly easier. And I'm glad that the FA are doing something about it.
here in England, uh, the FA and other organizations like Kikikai, they, they're doing their best. There are other European countries that need to up their method of stemming this particular um, racist behavior that, that is happening. It can't go on. It has to stop. Now, often when we're talking about racism within football, especially, it gets reduced down to just rowdy, ignorant fans. Do you believe that the issue of racism from the 70s and still today lies in the top level of management? That's a very good question. Um, I can't say what happens now because I'm not in the game. But I, I still believe that it happens on a top level, but in a subtle way. But the, the terrorist behavior in football clubs is still there. And in my opinion, racism would not be eradicated in my, in my time. We might be able to to stop it happening in, in the way that it was in um, in the seventies, but to actually eradicate racism from football is going to be a very very difficult thing to achieve. And when you look at in America with Colin Kaepernick taking the knee against uh, the national anthem and against racism over there. Do you wish that something similar had happened back when you were playing, that that same resistance occurred? I wish it did. Because he would have sent the message home quicker than he is doing now. But in those days, you didn't really want to bite the hand that feeds you. Because um, as a black sportsman, if you stepped out of the out of the circle, you you're regarded as a troublemaker. So you had to play along to make sure that uh, the people who are who are paying your wages, who are looking after you, are happy as long as you perform well. And when you look, there are times. Sorry, sorry, carry there, yeah, there are times when. Um, a couple of my friends, we actually sat down and said, look, this can't happen, what can we do? The reply will come back, what can we do? When you look at Raheem Sterling and other black players who, you know, talk about the abuse that they're getting today, what does that tell you about race relations in the UK um, from the 70s to now, that all these decades later, black players are still feeling the impact? They've had enough. They have had enough. They're actually saying to the general public that we watched it happen in the 70s with our parents and nothing has been done and we're now going through it. If they, didn't, if they couldn't do it then, players I'm referring to now, we 
as young players, we are going to do something about it because uh, they've got the power. To, so they've got the power to do it. We didn't in those days. They have had enough. They're saying this is enough. Stop it, or we will do something about it, which they are doing. And I respect the young Lane for doing what he's doing. And not only your history, but in gen in general, the history of Black Britain in this country almost goes unspoken of. You know, we hear about the greats in America, we hear about, you know, the movements over there, the sports stars that made a difference, but we don't really focus on Black British history, which is why your history is not so widely known as it should be. Why do you think we have that gap in our history? I'm going to say to you, I don't really know. I don't really know. But what I can say, when I was at school, all I learned was British history, European history at school. It was only when I left school that I realized that we blacks, we had scientists, we had people who did things that um, we couldn't really imagine as black people. It was only when I visited um, places, like youth clubs, and I saw pictures of black history makers along the wall that I realized that we black people did something that the world knew about. All I was taught at school was British and European history. So I thought that's where it ended. And what would be your advice for, you know, black or BAME football players in the game today? What, what would you advise them? Well, I would say, do the things that you're doing now. They notice one way or the other. I was the first black footballer to represent England at any level. No one knew about me until, what, 40 something years later. My advice is, if you can project yourself one way or the other, please do it. Because no one will do it for you. And it's pointless. You're waiting for an organization to put you forward. If there's anything you can do as an individual, within reasons, please go ahead and do it. And moving on to today, hmm. what what's life like for Benadigi today? <laughs> um, at the moment, with the lockdown and everything else that is happening, um, I'm a school teacher, a supply school teacher, and um, I also run a soccer school on Saturday. So from Monday to Friday, I'm a supply school teacher. I get ready every morning and wait for the phone to ring. And I'll pack my bags and go to whatever it is to go and teach. And on Saturdays, I run a soccer school in Queen's Park called Atlantic Sports Development, where I look after young schoolboys from the age of five 
chapter 15. And one thing I've actually noticed among us ethnic minorities is that some of us find it difficult to access the national curriculum. So we would do everything possible for the teacher to send us out of the classroom. And you always find that uh, most of these guys are very, very talented when it comes to sports. So what I've done, I would have a contract with them, a verbal contract, that if you stay in school, especially in the class, and nothing happens to you, I, you'll get sent out, you can come and join us at Queen's Park. And most of them have actually liked the idea of working in the classroom and at the same time get rewarded as a player at Queen's Park, at Athletic Sports Development. And if the FA, I'm now uh, coming up with my begging bowl, if the FA can see to this and help the youngsters who are um, failing not through their own faults, because not everybody has the academic mind or brain to actually work at school. If the FA can devise a strategy of collecting these guys and giving them a way of life, not necessarily academic, but sporting avenues for them to work in, it would be nice. And if, they, if the FA wants to help athletic sports development, they can contact you and let you know about it. So really, I would say most of our young young guys who are um, getting in trouble with the police, they need an avenue to let out their frustration. It could be sports, anything else, but not every single youngster is good, good enough to access the national curriculum because we're not made all the same. Some of us are different. No, I completely agree with you. I think community outreach is something that is important and uh, when we're talking about funding, funding of local um, initiatives and fu funding at the local level, I think that's so important uh, today. So I wanted to conclude our interview with a quick fire round of questions and uh, I invite you to complete the sentence. The first <laughs> one is, the greatest misconception about me is, <laughs> uh, the next one I'll come to that later. The next one is I'm most thankful for. Hmm. Uh, the gift of God that was given to me, i.e., to be able to do something that I enjoyed, which is football. My biggest regret is? My biggest regret. Uh, I don't have regrets of such. 
But my regret is being overlooked by the FA and those in the know. Because um, players who came after me have all been recognised. And the person that started it off for all all these black players that are around me is still not known at all. When I started playing football, there were only a handful of black, black players in the football league. But now, when you look at it, how many black players do you have played for England now? How many black players do you have in the football league at the moment? Before I played, we were regarded as summer footballers. We can only perform when the weather is warm. From winter months, we cannot. It was only after I represented England that we started having black players in the football league non-league and look at the England squad to conclude my regret is not being recognised for what I did all those years ago I am most fearful of most fearful of uh, along the same line well I, I hope that before I pass away, people will know that Benjamin Odisha was the first black England footballer. Not when I am gone, they will say, ah, we remember that Mr. Odisha, Mr. Benjamin Odisha was, I wouldn't hear, is, not the past tense. And finally, I am most proud of. I am most proud of my achievement, being the first black England footballer. I don't think anybody can say, oh, they did it. Or um, having your your name um, rubbed off the history book to put someone else's on. I can't do that because Mr. Benjamin Odigi is the first black footballer to play for England. Let me just add something else. Years ago, when my children were small, they used to go to school during Black History Month. They would say, proudly say, my dad was the first Black England footballer, and there would be a wall of silence. Just seconds later, a roll of laughter, as, as to say, you're lying. Your dad wasn't the first black Indian footballer because the history book doesn't say until a few years back when the BBC came to um, Queen's Park to do a recording, which is now on YouTube. And my children now can go out and say, I told you so, my dad is the first black footballer to play for England. Because uh, even my own children started doubting me. One of them sat down one day and said, Dad, you know how much we care and love for you. Were you really the first black woman? I brought tears to my eyes. 
you know, my own children were doubting my achievement. But I would like to be recognized while I'm still alive, not when I'm gone. Well, let me tell you, all the football players that are here now, the uh, Raheem Sterlings of today, they all stand on your shoulders. So, you know, we, we see you and we do hear you. And uh, we thank you for what you did. Brian, it was a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you, thank you for joining me on Telefriend. My pleasure.